Well, we do as a local church here and uh, as a nation offer our condolences to the Queen at this difficult time uh, and to her family. And we reflect on the life of her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, who reached the great age of 99. Uh, He almost received uh, a card for his 100th birthday from his wife, but didn't quite make it. I know it was uh, something, an ambition that he had and the royal family had, that he would reach 100. But in God's time, uh, 99. Constitutionally, uh, he wasn't of great consequence to the nation. He certainly wasn't in line to the throne. I remember watching Pointless recently and it looked to the top 50 people who were in line to the throne. The Duke of Edinburgh was not in line to the throne. Well, he'd be there somewhere, as I'm there somewhere. I don't know what number I am. I don't know what number you are. But everybody here, if we're uh, citizens of the UK, are in line to the throne uh, somewhere. It would take something of uh, great consequence if I were ever to become king. But uh, the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, was not close in line to the throne and yet lived a life of great significance. The Queen often called him uh, her rock uh, on which she could rely and depend upon. And for many years to come, uh, he will be remembered because he is going to be known as the father of King Charles III. Uh, He will be the grandfather of William V. And uh, children, there'll come a time when you will know a king called George VII. Now, it's very unlikely I will ever know King George VII. But for you, you're going to be around when uh, George becomes the seventh George to be crowned king of uh, the United Kingdom. And he, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, will have been the great-grandfather of King George VII. Who was he? Just another man? Well, yes, in many ways he was. He was born uh, in Greece. Now, I've got an affinity there. I wasn't born in Greece, but my father was born in Athens. Uh, Philip was born in Corfu on the 10th of June 1921, so he'd almost reached 100. He was born into a very privileged position. Uh, He was a royal prince. Uh, He was the son of uh, a a Greek prince and a Danish princess. He was born into great privilege and wealth. Prince Andrew of Greece was his father and Princess Alice of Denmark was his mother. You might not know too much about Princess Alice, but her brother was uh, Lord Mountbatten, Louis Mountbatten. When uh, Philip was only one year old, so Calvin's age, when, uh, when Philip was only one year old, he and his entire family were sent into exile from Greece, turbulent times in Greece, and they got rid of the royal family. So the royal prince Philip, at the age of one, was exiled from his homeland. Andrew's cousin, George V of Britain at the time, 
uh, invited the royal family from Greece to come here to Britain. And they settled for a while near Paris. During his early life, exile, uh, his mother had great mental instabilities, Princess Alice. When Philip was eight, she was committed to a mental asylum for many years. She did recover and eventually went to live at Buckingham Palace with Philip uh, and the Queen. When Alice went into a mental institution for a number of years, Philip's uh, father, Andrew, sort of disappeared from the scene. And uh, Philip was brought up by his uncle, George. But his uncle, George, died at the age of 45 And then it was his uncle, Louis Mountbatten, who took Philip under his wing. Philip went to uh, Cheam uh, Public School and then on to Gordonston. At the age of 18, the Second World War broke out and uh, Philip served in the Navy in the Pacific and in the Mediterranean. And in that time, he was introduced to uh, a young girl called Princess Elizabeth. And uh, after the Second World War, their relationship blossomed. And in 1947, uh, they were married. Princess Elizabeth and Philip were married. 73 years of marriage. Imagine that. 73 years of marriage. I'm not even 73 years old yet, but 73 years of marriage. There's a couple here getting quite close to 73 years of marriage, uh, but it's not 73 years yet. You're into your 60s, aren't you? Certainly have have married life together. And uh, Philip, and here's the point I want to make, has been a great, great constancy. Now think about my life now. I'm 63, I'm coming up 64. And uh, throughout my years, Uh, He's always been there. And for many of you, you can relate to this. The Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh, uh, they have been a constancy. Philip, uh, something of a controversial figure in many ways, and yet uh, a constancy. And in a changing world, and the world changes so rapidly, uh, he was a constant to us, the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. Many things change, but that had never changed. I would look around in our nation, many things change, but always there is the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh. Think about Prime Ministers, they come uh, and they go. Uh, In my lifetime, born in 1957, I don't remember, but he was there at the start of my life, Anthony Eden, and then Harold Macmillan, and uh, Alec Douglas Hume. Harold Wilson, Edward Heath, Jim Callaghan, Margaret Thatcher, John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, Boris Johnson, all these different prime ministers, 12 of them in my lifetime, but one Duke of Edinburgh. Governments have come and gone in my lifetime. I began under a Tory government. Then my formative years, a Labour government, and then back into a Tory government, and swinging backwards and forwards, majorities, minorities, coalitions, governments have come and gone. Technology, what a change in technology in my 
lifetime. I remember when I was 12 years old being very excited and uh, my mum took me out when I was 12. We went into the town centre where I lived, Barn Oldswick. We went into a phone box because we just had a phone installed in our home and my dad wanted to hear it ring. So me and my mum went out into the town, found a red phone box. Remember phone boxes? How times have changed. We went in there and I think it cost... Uh, it might have been at that time a sixpence he had to put in. Um, and we rang the number. And I remember my number still, 2497. Bon Oldswick 2497. I was taught when I answered the phone, say Bon Oldswick 2497. A telephone in the home, what an exciting thing. Now I've got this. Now it's pretty old now, it's an iPhone 6. It's out of uh, contract, so it's pretty cheap to run. It only costs me about £10 a month, and uh, so I'm, I'm sticking with it because it works well. And uh, I think, though, Apple have got built-in uh, decay systems that make you change it eventually, but at the moment it works well. And in this phone, there is a computer chip more powerful than the computer that put the Apollo mission on the moon. That's quite staggering how technology has changed in my lifetime. My friends, over these 63 years, I remember school friends, they've come and they have gone. Jobs have changed. Family uh, has changed. I've changed. I look in the mirror and I'm shocked. I looked again this morning and I'm, I'm pretty shocked at what I see. Change and decay in all around I see. But during my 63 years and 11 months, it's always been the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh until this last Friday, 99, and he has gone. Question comes, did he have any, any faith? I've listened to quite a few programmes. Um, I, I thought they might have put Pointless onto BBC Two, but I couldn't even watch Pointless on Friday night. Uh, everything, every channel, every uh, radio channel, uh, the Duke of Edinburgh. Did he have faith? I was listening to the radio on the way down from Mid Wales this morning and some very interesting comments uh, on him. Of course, I've watched the TV series The Crown, which uh, is part fiction and part truth, but this part is definitely true that was depicted in The Crown. Philip was a cynic, a spiritual cynic, a religious cynic uh, when it came to the things of God, very much uh, a cynic. But something did happen uh, in his life, and it is depicted uh, in The Crown, where it seems he came to certainly a faith in the being of God. And from that point, he was a regular at church. He used to make his excuses and not go. And the queen would go alone quite often. But from that point, this thing that happened to him, uh, he was a regular at church. And on the way down this morning, I learned this. He would uh, often be in, in the church there. And of course, in the, the royal churches, they have uh, bishops who come uh, to preach. And one bishop was relating, whenever you preach before Prince Philip, you had to be on your toes because he actually listened to the sermon. And after every sermon, he would, he would always have questions. It doesn't often happen to this preacher. Most of my questions come from children, which is lovely. 
Uh, they've got lots of questions they'd like to ask uh, the pastor. But for many, we sort of sit and absorb. Maybe there are things that you just all know already. But with Prince Philip, he always asks questions. And this bishop said, I happened to make a comment in my sermon. I, and I said, of course, the first gospel to be written was the gospel of Mark. And I carried on with my sermon. And afterwards, he buttonholed me at the door. Bishop, how do you know that Mark's gospel was the first one to be written? And if it was written first, why is it second in the New Testament? And why doesn't it come first? He always had questions to ask. Prince Philip was a friend of those who sit in the pews. And he was keen on briefer sermons rather than longer ones. And I learnt this this morning. Here's a quotation from Prince Philip. The brain cannot absorb what the backside cannot endure. Maybe you can say amen to that. The brain cannot absorb what the backside cannot endure. Now, some are on comfy seats. Uh, here, some of you are on the hard uh, wooden pews. Did I ever have any personal dealings with Prince Philip? Well, yes, I did. In June 2014, I was invited into his back garden. The Queen and her husband, Prince Philip, invited me into their back garden for a tea party. Myself and my wife. Well, there were 4,000 others there as well. But uh, he was there and he mingled with the people and he was very affable and chatty. He never spoke directly to me. I saw him. I doubt he doesn't remember ever, I doubt he ever remembers seeing me. I was part of a crowd, but I saw him and he'd invited me and he'd laid on a lovely spread and we queued for a while and we got lovely sandwiches and lashings of cups of tea. We could walk around the gardens, but he was there. I saw him, but he didn't see me. Uh, he was in the distance. It was a brief encounter and it went entirely unnoticed, I'm sure, by him. Our Prince Philip. Now I'd like to look to our true constancy because 99 and no longer with us, but we do have our prince, our one true constancy. And in a changing world, what a delight, what a relief, what a reality, what a great Great comfort to know Jesus Christ as our constant, unchanging reality. Hebrews 13 and verse 8. Yesterday, today, and interestingly, not tomorrow. Yesterday, today, you think it would say tomorrow. But no, it goes beyond that. Yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same. He is heaven's prince. He is the prince of glory. He comes from eternity past. He enters briefly into time and he moves to eternity future. Uh, he takes this name on his lips, Yahweh, which means uh, uh, I am. Uh, not I was, not I will be, I am. He is the constant reality. Philip was born into the Greek royal family. He was born into privilege. He was rich. But Jesus, he is rich beyond our imagination. 
rich in his person. He is very God, a very God. He's rich in his power. Uh, he can do all things. With God, nothing is impossible. Uh, we've got these omnis, omnipotent. There's some things I'd want to do but can't do. There's nothing that Jesus Christ cannot do. He's omnipotent. He's omniscient. Uh, Jesus, our great prince, knows all things. He's never learned anything. He knows all facts of history, science, geography. Uh, He'd get all the right answers in any assessment or quiz. Uh, He'd even know where the assessors have got things wrong and be able to correct them. His his knowledge is far more wonderful than that because uh, he, he actually knows you in intimate detail. He knows me in intimate detail. He knows things about me that my wife doesn't know. He knows things about my wife that I don't know. Uh, He knows what you are thinking right now. He has an intimate knowledge of you. He knows what your next word will be when the service is finished and your mask comes off. He knows already that the first word that will come out of your mouth. I I, I don't know. I I don't know such things, but he knows. Uh, Omnipresent. Uh, earlier on at six o'clock this morning, I was in Mid Wales. Uh, I wasn't here. And now at five past 11, I'm here and I'm not in Mid Wales. But Jesus Christ is in Mid Wales and he's here. He's at all points around planet Earth. He is rich in his person, in his power. He's rich in his possessions. It becomes ridiculous. We talk about and we get all... And I wish I had. And uh, it was on the news this week. Some lady, Cardassian. I thought they were things off Star Trek, the Cardassians. I think, I think they are actually on Star Trek. There's some alien race. But there's, what, there's a family that live, I think they're in, living in America. And uh, I've forgotten her first name. I think she's married to Mr. West. Anyway, she's become a billionaireess. Isn't that impressive? Woo! A, billion, a billionaireess. And then you get someone like George Soros and, uh, and this Bezos guy, the Amazon head, and $200 billion and Zuckerberg and uh, all these things. And for, for all their billions, it's such a, such a nothing. It's this little tiny planet called Earth, 93 million miles away from a tiny star called the Sun, and 100,000 million suns in our galaxy, the Milky Way, and 100,000 million galaxies uh, in the known universe. And we're finding more and more beyond that. And on planet Earth, there's somebody saying, what, let's become a billionaire in this little time. And and there's Jesus Christ. And I say, "And what, what can you say about his riches? Well, he owns everything, everything. And his position, and you think about his authority, And there's presidents who come and go and kings who come and go and prime ministers and they're nothing but a vapour but Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords. Look at the text. Now something has never changed here at the church in over 40 years, the text above the pulpit. I often refer to it, it's one of my favourite texts and it's speaking about Jesus. Though he was rich. 
I'm trying to describe briefly something of his riches. Prince Philip was born into a privileged position and eventually he lived in Buckingham Palace uh, and he had uh, Windsor Palace and he had Sandringham and he had uh, Balmoral. But what's he got now? Well, I don't know what he's left it all behind. People ask, how much did he leave? And I tell you, he left everything. We don't take anything with us, but Jesus Christ, who was rich, the richest, He became poor. He became poor. Philip became poor in a sense, exiled, difficult in his family. Jesus became poor voluntarily. The Bible is very careful. He emptied himself. Wesley puts it this way. He emptied himself of all but love. He laid aside the visible glory And he became one of us. Another TV program I dip into occasionally. It's interesting, it's poignant. It's called Rich House, Poor House. And they take a really wealthy family with their millions. And for a week they swap with a family who have got very little in this this world. And they swap houses and cars and incomes for the week. And the, the, the shock as the rich family who live on maybe £3,000 a week of disposable income, open little tin, and they've got about £50 to live on for the week. And then the the poor family, uh, the delight, they reach this mansion and they open the tin and instead of £50, they've got £3,000 for the week. They don't know, how can we spend all this money? They're thinking, they drive the posh cars, they go to the yacht club and, and things. But it's only for a week that the rich man becomes the poor man the prince becomes the pauper but here with Jesus the richest becomes one of us he becomes one of us and he's born not into a palace but a cold dark stable Jesus becomes one of us he chooses to leave the glory, and not for a TV program. He's not doing it for a TV program. He's not doing it to get publicity. He's doing it for you, for your sakes. And he empties himself, and he becomes one of us. Now, I want to focus here now. Who who, who are us? (laughs) Who who are we? Who am I? Well, here, now look up and, and think about this now. I don't know... Your position spiritually as you listen uh, online now, as you're listening here in the chapel, there's something very wonderful but very terrible about us. We were made in the image of God. We are dust united to glory. There's a physical body, but there is in you and I an immortal soul. And it's the soul that's made in the image of God of God and we are something very wonderful if you're listening out there now and thinking what's life all about there's terrible news of it during lockdown in particular people getting to points of despair even children and young people thinking what's the point what's the purpose of life we were made for better things than this and however much you might have you become a Cardassian or a Klingon or a or, or a Soros, or a Bezos, or a, or, a, or a Zuckerberg. 
and you don't know God, it will not satisfy because you and I were made for one great purpose. Here's the heart of it. Adam in the Garden of Eden did lots of things. He was a gardener. He was a scientist. He named the animals. But that didn't fulfill him. He was made to know God. And it was God that fulfilled Adam's life. And it's God alone who can fulfill your life. But there's a devastating problem. Why don't we know God? The problem's a moral one. It happened in the Garden of Eden and we're living under the consequences of Adam's sin. We'd have done the same. But when Adam sinned, we all sinned. When he died, we died. We're born with sin and because of that, we sin. We do things wrong because we are wrong. And there's the problem, sin. It's ripped out our raison d'etre. We can't know God because of sin. And we can't go home because of sin. And what's the answer? Well, the answer is our great prince. Not the Duke of Edinburgh, not the royal princes, but it's the great royal Prince, it's Jesus Christ. He's the answer to our deepest need. Little couplet I often use at funerals to build a little message around. It goes like this Life is brief, death is sure, sin the cause, Christ the cure. Life is brief, however old you might become. The oldest person I've taken a funeral for was 103, the youngest was a 20 week old stillborn. It's the youngest. There's quite extremes there. Life is brief. Death is sure. Sin is the cause. Thank God there is a cure. It's Jesus Christ. And his life and his death and his resurrection are the answer to our deep need. Think about his life. 33 years years he lived on planet earth now his life is vital we often think that uh, what I need is the death of Jesus Christ I, I do I do it's vital he died for me but we often overlook his life without his life his death would not help me if he'd been still born there's no help to me that he dies even if on that stillborn the Lord had laid on him the iniquity of us all, it wouldn't help me because to get to heaven, I need righteousness. And I cannot benefit from the innate righteousness of Jesus Christ and his person of the Son of God. His eternal righteousness is no good for me. I need a righteousness that's been lived under the law of God. I need an active, righteous life. I need to have kept the Ten Commandments, word, thought and deed. And that's the 33 years he lived and he lived them for me. And the righteousness I, got, I get given to me as a gift when I trust Jesus is not the righteousness that's innate in Jesus Christ, but it's the righteousness he wrote for me for 33 years he lived a righteous life under God's eye and God said, with him I am well pleased. He has done it for me. He lived a perfect life. 
And then his life alone is not enough. He dies for my demerits. He dies for my sin in principle and in action. Philip died peacefully. We're thankful for that in his castle with his family. Jesus died naked, alone, in anguish, agony, nailed to a Roman cross. Why? Well, he became poor. What exchange was it? It wasn't heaven for earth. It wasn't heaven for a stable. It was heaven for hell. The extreme was the widest extreme. The cross is beyond our comprehension. You see, he became the poorest. There are very poor people we might find in the world. We think there's poverty in Cardiff City Centre. There's poverty beyond and deeper than that. That people live in abject poverty in many nations around the world with no hope and no benefits whatsoever. But Jesus Christ on Calvary becomes far infinitely poorer than any of them. Because on the cross of Calvary, Jesus takes my hell. He lived the life I couldn't live. He dies the death that I deserve in my place. And I've said this often, I'll say it again. Jesus Christ is the only vicar. He dies vicariously. And from that word, vicarious, on behalf of others. He gives his life as a ransom for many. He is the only vicar. He dies for my sin. Why has he done it? Again, at the apex of the text, for your sakes. Why? To take away my sin. That I might become rich. Now the text should be going in a full circle because it finishes halfway through. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that we through his poverty might become rich. He takes our hell that we might gain his heaven. Jesus Christ. Now how can I benefit? Repent. Repent and believe. I repent of what I am and I turn away and I turn to Jesus Christ. And with repentance comes faith. To turn, I need to believe that he is the only one and the one who can help me. He lived for me. He died for me. He rose again. It's not going to church or singing hymns or being baptized or being a nice person that gets me to heaven. All those things leave me with my sin. I repent of what I am and I turn to what Jesus Christ is and what he has done for me. And when I do that, in a world of constant change, he is my constant reality and my saviour. I had an encounter with the Duke of Edinburgh in June 2014. He wouldn't have noticed it. I haven't forgotten it. He certainly wouldn't even know it happened. But I had an encounter with the Prince of Glory, Jesus Christ, in 1976. And I noticed him, but more, more gloriously, he noticed me. He noticed me. And he called me across. He beckoned me to himself. He said, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It was a personal encounter, and it hasn't decreased since then. And if it goes up and down, the downs are my fault, and the ups are all to his 
glory, but I need to keep on pursuing him. And in a changing world, he and he alone is my constant reality. Yesterday, today, and forever, Jesus Christ is the same. In life, he keeps me. In death, he is my comfort. The time will come when I will have to to die. Hold thou thy cross before my closing eyes. Shine through the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. And then on into forever. Now, my friends, listening at home and listening here in the chapel, have you believed, have you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? Remember this earthly prince, and we're thankful to God for his life, for the help he was to our queen. But way above and beyond have we looked to the Prince of Glory, Jesus Christ. Have we trusted in him? And are we still trusting in him now? May God help us. Let's, let's pray. Father, thank you for a brief time in your word. We thank you in a changing world for the great constancy of yourself. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, pray you would continue to be a comfort and a strength to your people and that even today you might add to your kingdom such as should be saved. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.